You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Martin Reeves, who is the chairman of the Henderson Institute at the Boston Consulting Group, and also the author of multiple books. His most recent book is called The Imagination Machine, and also Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. I should mention also the co-author of The Imagination Machine, Jack Fuller. You know, when you call this book The Imagination Machine, I know that you've been thinking about these issues for a long time, obviously, in both your intellectual and career life. But when you call this thing imagination machine, I think you're trying to make the case that, because it seems a bit like an oxymoron, right? We think imagination and then we think machine. Machines are designed to do things that are very well thought through, very well organized, repeatable, scalable, and so forth. And imagination is this thing which is kind of more fuzzy and, and more loose, more unpredictable, more chaotic. And I think your argument is that in order for companies to succeed in today's world, they have to harness imagination and learn to repeat and scale imagination the way they've been repeating and scaling, say, the manufacture of cars. Is that a correct characterization of the choice of title? That's right, Greg. So the nuance of the title is that what's a machine? A machine is something which gets a job done. And what is the job to be done by business strategy today? Well, it's it's not to sustain long-standing advantage. That would be nice, but we know that competitive advantage decays very rapidly. So it's to renew advantage. Renewal takes you into the creative part of strategy, imagination, innovation, harnessing imagination. And so that's the job to be done. Now, we may think of imagination as being something which is uh, fickle and individual and instantaneous and not capable of being managed. But that's rather strange, actually. There are some reasons why we have this idea about imagination. But business doesn't shy away from measuring unpredictable, complex aspects of human affairs in general. We think about consumer psychology. We think about managing human resources. It's not really about imagination. It's about harnessing imagination to reimagine corporations in the face of lots of external change. Well, when we think about strategy, sort of the traditional view of strategy, which I think both of us were trained in, it's really more thought of as a scientific exercise where you identify opportunities in a fairly systematic way and then you exploit them according to a formula that that is provided to you by academics, provided to you by consulting firms. And imagination doesn't play much of a role in traditional strategy, but now we're, we're increasingly thinking in terms of ambidextrous organizations. Has strategy, has the world of strategy had to reinvent itself in a world where competitive advantage disappears so rapidly? I think it's in the process of being reinvented. It takes a long time for the frameworks we grew up with to be supplanted by something else. But there are many ways of defining strategy. But as a pragmatist, as a practitioner, I define it as anything that gets the job done. What is the job to be done? It is through some systematic pattern of thought or behavior to achieve superior competitive outcomes. And historically, that has been equated with planning. Now, I don't dismiss planning and analysis as one approach to strategy. So my previous book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, deals with the whole collection of different approaches to strategy and asks the question, what sort of strategy do we need in what sort of environment? So we have the classical strategy, the planning-based strategy. In fast-moving environments, we have adaptive strategy, which is not competing on scale and efficiency and positioning, but competing on learning, relative rate of learning. And then we have visionary strategy, which is competing on creating new things, being first. So an entrepreneur doesn't 
plot his position in the market because there is no market yet. He creates a market for something new. And then we have strategies of ecosystems, which are collaborative strategies, where you figure out some mutually interesting value proposition for a group of firms to reshape an industry. And then while you might not think about it as a strategy, you also have renewal strategy, which is fixing uh, broken strategies, which often has to be done very rapidly and very pragmatically. But the, the stakes there are enormous. So it, it is a strategic exercise, in, in my opinion. So this, this new book, The Imagination Machine, double clicks on the visionary strategy, the creative element of strategy, which is also the, um, if you think about it, the remarkable property of companies to imagine something that doesn't exist, which all founders of companies did, and then to cause that to become a new everyday reality. So it's essentially saying, what does that process work? And that is indeed underlined because in today's world, competitive advantage decays very rapidly. So it's not just the small companies that need to do that. Historically, to generalize slightly, it was the, it was the entrepreneurial companies, the startups that created new ways of doing things. And then if they were lucky enough to be successful and to scale, the main job of management was to optimize that yesterday's successful way of doing things. But I think that the big thing that's changed in strategy is that large companies now need to be entrepreneurial too if they want to persist. Wasn't this idea of ambidextrous organization in some ways, doesn't it exist in utero in the old BCG matrix, right? Which was, you know, 30, 40, 50, actually it's probably 50 plus years old at this point. Yeah, so it's the classic portfolio matrix, which at one point was used by more than half of the Fortune 500, was basically the idea that you needed to allocate resources in a balanced way across a portfolio of products at different stages of development. So you needed to have question marks, you know, things that may or may not pan out, but that's where your future option value comes from. And you need, you know, rising stars. You need some of those businesses to be growing. Eventually they become cash cows and that pays for the new innovation activity. You need businesses that are performing that fund ones that will perform. And then, of course, some businesses go over the hill and become dogs, in which case you need to pull cash out of them because that will otherwise prevent you from funding new businesses. So that is, if you like, a resource allocation approach to the life cycle of ideas and businesses. What it didn't do really, though, was to go inside people's heads, the mental processes associated with innovation and the conceptualization of, of innovation. And it didn't really deal with the organizational aspect of how do you progress something as tenuous as a speculative idea through to being an optimized, scaled reality, and then to repeat that process. So the the book really delves more into the mental dimension and the organizational dimension. So nowadays, when I think about strategy, I don't, I don't only think about the strategizing, the traditional strategizing parts of the process. I think about the strategy stack. I think about the entire suite of organizational, psychological, financial and strategic tools to get the job done in total. Yeah, and I think in this book, you talk a lot about not just ambidextrous organizations, but ambidextrous mentality or the ambidextrous viewpoint that people have to have within the organization. And we're going to get to that in a bit. But when we think about imagination, does it make sense to think of it as a resource and capability of a firm that is either tapped into or not tapped into? Or is it simply about recruiting and retaining people who have imagination. And then once you get them in the organization, the organization will somehow become more imaginative. One of the things we have to do in the book was to look at the history of imagination and what philosophy and the arts had to say about it. We also had to look at computer science because, of course, we're redrawing the cognitive boundaries between what humans do and what computers do, as well as the business perspective. And we came across a number of 
myths, if you like, of imagination that get in the way of seeing what needs to be done clearly. And one of those myths is that imagination is a magical process that can't be managed. And we reinforce that when we tell Steve Jobs stories, heroic stories about individuals, because implicitly we're implying that it's not a systematic capability in an organization, it's a magical property of a very small minority of individuals. And then a related myth to that is that imagination is mainly an individual affair. It's Steve Jobs. But actually, we think that imagination is needs to be both individual and collective in order to be scaled and harnessed. And that to some extent, as much as any other unpredictable aspect of human affairs, it can be scaled and harnessed. Well, maybe we should put some teeth on, on what imagination is. And I think you emphasize the idea that imagination is thinking about what is not. In other words, not just simply thinking about what is, but what is not, and, and then engaging in some counterfactual mental exercises to think about what the world could be. And then ultimately, you need an organization that's capable of taking things from the way they are to the way they potentially could be. That's right. And, and so as we go into the nuts and bolts, just let me quickly introduce another consideration in the book, which is this cognitive boundaries being redrawn between machines and humans aspect. So we, we're also thinking, you know, what will the machines replace and what will the machines not be able to replace? And where do we focus the human cognition in the strategy process? But indeed, what we're talking about here is a style of thinking, which is counterfactual thinking, which is thinking about things that are not the case. So the mathematician Judea Pearl distinguishes three types of cognition. I think it's a useful distinction. He talks about correlative thinking, which is if this happens, what else happens? So if I buy donuts, what else happens? I also buy coffee. So machine learning is in many applications, is already much better than expert human beings in figuring out those correlations. And then we have causal thinking, which is, which comes first, the coffee or the donuts? Do I buy coffee because I buy donuts or the other way around? And machine learning may eventually be able to make that a tractable problem, but the history of statistics is such that the machine learning that we currently have isn't particularly good at that. So for the time being, that's a more human domain. But the one that is beyond the reach of machine learning currently and tremendously important in uh, creating new things is counterfactual thinking, thinking about things that could be the case that are not yet the case, which is essentially the entrepreneurial way of thinking. And this is important because, of course, entrepreneurs do this all the time, but large companies under the guise of practicality or efficiency stress this less and less over time. So ironically, although every company was founded on an act of imagination, that capacity for imagination or reimagination, or you could say more financially, the capacity to generate future growth option value tends to decay over time. So we know that, for example, the growth potential of companies declines by about 3% percentage points for every doubling of size and for every doubling of the age of a company. So that's the gravity that we're trying to defy here. And you talk about mental models. I want to get into that. But I guess the, the temptation would be to think at this point, well, okay, if I have an ambidextrous organization and I have one part of the organization that's doing all the exploitation and I've got another part that's doing the, um, the exploring, I can just put the exploitation business in the hands of the the robots, right? And let them, you know, rinse, wash, repeat that aspect of the business. And then I can devote most of my human carbon-based thinking to the explore side of the equation. Would that be uh, an erroneous? <laughs> to, to some extent. I mean, um, one of the major questions of the book is, 
what should the humans focus on? And, you know, we should focus on things where we have a unique advantage that can't be done more efficiently in some other way. And one of them is counterfactual thinking. I think another is anything to do with human empathy. We're a social species and we prefer to interact with humans. Now we can simulate to some extent interacting with a human, but, you know, there'll always be high touch service businesses where a human is much better at dealing with the the quirks and the unpredictabilities and the empathetic aspect of an interaction. But there are many others too. For instance, algorithmic governance is what should be, it's more of a moral question, mm-hmm. what should the machine learning be doing and how frequently should it be updated and what's moral and so on, these sorts of questions. The architecting of the imagination machine itself, you know, design problems to some extent are still very human problems. And then the purpose of the organization, you know, after all, you know, what is the point of business? It's to further human ends. What human ends? We get to decide that. So this may sound a little, uh, a little abstract, but there are businesses out there like Google and Recruiter, we talk about a lot in the book, mm-hmm. that is seriously thinking about reconceiving the organization as some sort of synergistic combination of machine cognition and human cognition that changes everything. I mean, it changes our construct of an organization. So it becomes less a structured hierarchy of people relatively doing stable tasks with reporting and control relationships to that plus more dynamism, plus mm-hmm. synergy with, with AI, with new governance communication procedures wrapped around it all. So when I think about innovation, I think about incremental innovation, which is innovation around the edges, and then some kind of transformative innovation. And it seems that in order to do the first, you need causal reasoning. I mean, you have to figure out what kind of experiments to run. And it's not clear that artificial intelligence is at the stage where it's capable of generating those experiments. I mean, perhaps you could design some kind of system which would automate the experimentation process, but that would only presumably only help you with the incremental innovation. It's hard to imagine AI designing the kinds of inquiries that would help you to do something that's non-incremental. Well, I think actually all imagination and innovation is grounded on causal reasoning. We may have the uh, loose idea that imagination is qualitatively different from and maybe even opposed to causal thinking. But if you think about it, imagination is not fantasy. Uh, Fantasy is unconstrained counterfactual thinking. Constrained counterfactual thinking is constrained by the logical structures of the world, by causal reasoning. We want to imagine things that do not exist, but which could exist, as opposed to imagining things which could not exist because they're not compatible with what we know about economics and physics and so on. So it's all grounded in causality. And, and I think you, you argue that this is something which is uniquely human, this capacity. It is. I'm originally a, a biologist and you know, I've looked at the evolutionary aspects of imagination and cognition. And some animals, to some extent, have aspects of counterfactual reasoning. A, a chimpanzee can reason about the uses of tools that it hasn't explored yet if those tools are in its visual field. So in a very limited way, they have a sort of imagination. But our ability to actually say, well... You know, I have a mental model of reality based on the laws of physics, and I construct alternative realities and choose which ones to bring about. That's uniquely human versus other species and also versus the best that we have of machine learning. We do explore the question in one of the later chapters of, will there ever be such a thing as artificial imagination? And we explore the relationship between, we ask questions like, can machines help us to imagine better? But for the time being, it is somewhat uniquely human. I've interviewed a number of biologists, all of whom have emphasize different aspects of what makes us human, and some have emphasized our propensity to collaborate. Others have emphasized our theory of mind. Others have emphasized language. Others have emphasized our capacity for reason. And I think 
you doubled down on this counterfactual thinking, but there's other aspects to it, in particular, the ability to think analogously and transfer learning across different domains. And so you encourage people to explore insights from multiple domains in order to do these analogous inferences. We have six steps that any organization needs to master to be able to systematically harness imagination. And the first one we call the seduction. The seduction step is when we choose to focus on a possibility that doesn't exist. And looking at both the science of imagination and also any case that is in business, it seems that this is all about surprise. We have no need to update our mental model unless we encounter a surprise. And the surprise comes in in sort of three flavors. One of them is, is accidents, which is we're trying to do this other thing, and this thing happened. And when we took a closer look, it, it suggested new possibilities, accidents. And another one is anomalies, which is generally this happens, but in this case, this other thing happened. And a lot of very entrepreneurial businesses pay attention to anomalies. The outliers are not the the thing to be ignored. They're the thing to be focused on because that's where the seeds of future option value is. And then another one indeed is is analogies. What is this like? And if this happened over there, why not over here? So we, in the entrepreneurial stories that we investigated, we looked at how individuals had, and generally the first step is at an individual level, how people embraced analogies, accidents, and anomalies. You also, in each of these chapters, talk about some of the obstacles to this. And it seems like most people are uncomfortable with surprise. You'd think they would enjoy it. You get some dopamine when you see a surprise. You get some cortisone too. You know, It requires cognitive effort to focus on the outliers and not just the averages. I mean, the averages is this marvelously, just the idea of an arithmetic mean or a median is, is a wonderful compression mechanism. It enables us to focus on one thing rather than 500 things. But we do lose the signal value of the anomalies if we do that. So there's the cognitive effort. There is fear of the unknown. Obviously, our explanation, the depth of the explanation to our boss about the anomaly, the thing which isn't fully worked out yet, is always going to be more shallow than the the safer, deeper, more rational explanation. There is just curiosity. Are you even looking or seeing what is in your visual field? I think there is, we say boils down to two things, really. One of them is seeing. So large organizations, for example, are in general extremely introverted. An organization is like a sphere. The surface area to volume ratio decreases the bigger the sphere gets. And so by default, organizations become more and more inward looking. So you have to make a special effort to even see the anomalous signals that you should be adapting to. And for the whole organization to see that, because if one person on the edge of the organization says, I can see this thing that completely undermines our current way of doing business, and nobody else can see that, you know, you've got a social translation problem. And then the other one is caring. So all the entrepreneurs we spoke to either had a deep frustration with the status quo, or they had some image of an ideal, something that could be better, even though nobody was, no customer was explicitly asking for it. So those are some of the obstacles and secrets to this seduction step. So I had someone come and speak in my data science class, and she was describing how a lot of companies, when they're building out their machine learning models, they just acquire data indiscriminately. So most of that data doesn't really tell them anything that they didn't already know. And if you're more selective, then you can conserve your energy and seek out those bits of training data that will ultimately help you to refine your decision-making. And it's always been surprising to me that companies don't have a more conscious and intentional strategy for acquiring information that they would need in order to improve their... Well, some do. I mean, some understand that upstream of innovation, we have imagination. Imagination is triggered by the contact with otherness, things that don't fit our current mental models or current ways of doing things. And some organizations 
explicitly seek out that otherness. I have, have a business review article coming out in a couple of weeks' time on the art of what I call anomaly hunting. Some companies go out and look for the, for not trends. You know, trends is a change in the world that has a name and everybody's looking at and not speculation, you know, mm-hmm. things that could be the case for which there's no evidence. But they, there are a number of companies. I give the example of a company called Brooks Automation, for example, that explicitly went out looking for new ways of deploying their capabilities and looking for the weak signals that others hadn't yet picked up. So in a way, they're hunting anomalies. They are pursuing the adjacent possible. They're looking for signals that suggest that there may be some substance, some reason, some evidence to think about building their business in a different way. You are right in saying that's not mainly what market research or strategy does. I used to teach a statistics class alongside a colleague of mine who was teaching the design thinking class. And it was funny because I'm a humanist teaching stats and she's an engineer teaching design thinking. And she used to always joke that in stats, you're always looking for the pattern. And in design thinking, you're always looking for the violations of the pattern. I don't think that's quite true, but you need to have both, right? There's some truth in that. Absolutely. So we talk about it as thinking like a novelist. The details actually matter. If you're looking for the poignant anomalies that will hint at new ways of doing things, the average won't tell you much. The average will just, even in the case where the world is shifting to a new set of needs or possibilities, the average will only change very slowly. So you really need to look at the particular. The idea of analogous thinking is fascinating to me. I remember my first involvement with BCG was 20 years ago, and a bunch of consultants came to University of Virginia where I was, and we had a weekend where they would learn about biology and game theory and all this stuff, which was very abstract and academic. And I remember when I would teach this material, the consultants that came would start running away with it. And they would take these models and they would say, oh, well, this could mean this and this could mean that. And I was like, no, no, you wait, you're violating the assumptions. Wait, that's not how it works. And then I realized that's actually a good thing, that they're deviating from the parameters of the strict academic formal model. They're exploring and looking for insight that's inspired by these models without necessarily being strict illustrations of the model. So I run a part of BCG called the Henderson Institute, as you said, and we're in the business of hunting down new ideas that businesses will need in the future. And we have a fellows program. And one of our, I think you're referring to one of our fellows, Tia von Gitzi, who some years ago wrote a piece in her business review called the, the Fruitful Flaws of Metaphors. And, you know, essentially this was all about pushing metaphors into the, the space of the unknown, the unexplored, and seeing where they break down and using that you know, why is that a useful thing to do? Because we're often prisoners of our own mental models. We often mistake our mental models for facts. And it's hard to see that unless you either break your mental model or go outside your mental model. And one strategy for doing that is analogous thinking or metaphorical thinking. Another strategy of doing that is to have multiple mental models. If I know how physics works, how romantic novel plots work, how biology works, I can adopt an adaptive view of things, a learning-based view of things, a mechanical view of things, a complex systems view of things. And there'll be many dead ends, of course. But as I say, you know, thinking is for free. The mental exploration part of this is not expensive. People confuse the expense and time of an experiment, of a physical experimentation process with the mental exploration process. So one of the things that a company needs to do is to free up its mental exploration process and stop labeling that sort of activity as, you know, wasteful, unevidenced, impractical, because that's where imagination begins. One of the techniques I've found over the years, basically, I'm a professional strategist. I've been doing business strategy for 30 years. One of my frustrations over the years has been that you can take the right questions, the right people, the right resources, the right amount of time, 
frame a strategy process around them and mysteriously come out with some minor variant of the strategy that you went into the process with. And after some years, it struck me that this was because of the difficulty of challenging our mental models and seeing them as that. So in the book, we have a number of managerial games which are explicitly designed to expose our models as models, to expose alternative models within the context of the game, break our unspoken assumptions, which we may treat as facts, and then to toy with alternative assumptions, which is a very good place to start a strategy process. I think. So I, I used to call those pre-strategy games. They're very good for freeing up the thinking before you enter a strategy process. I think you, you talked about Thomas Aquinas and the, the idea of his skill at exploring completely alternative models. And you mentioned the mental model. I don't think Thomas Aquinas would use this terminology, but you referred to a mental model as a controlled hallucination. Yes, I mean, it's very important that we don't see our mental models as facts. So, for example, here are some things that sound like facts. I'm in the consulting industry, and we have such and such a market share, and the growth rate is 3%. I mean, it sounds very factual. It sounds very objective. But am I in the consulting industry? Am I in the media industry? Am Mm. I in the technology industry? These are all valid alternative points of view that Mm. would lead to different conclusions. And if the industry that I'm part of is not a fact, then things like market share, like market share turns from being an apparently objective number into something that depends upon how you look at it. So this is the second step we're talking about here, which is working the idea. I think there's an art to working the idea, which is essentially being aware of mental models as mental models, Mm. being aware of the components and assumptions of our mental models, having some sort of process of recombining those elements and a process for maintaining coherence of vision across the different elements. That is the detail of the artisanal part of counterfactual thinking. Now, I don't think in general we get taught very much how to think in that way in schools and and in business schools. And corporate cultures often reinforce that with the pursuit of efficiency and practicality. And the speed, you know, we are working tremendously hard in this country and we, we don't often even allow time for this sort of more reflective, exploratory thinking. So I think it's very important to reclaim that space at the beginning of the process. Well, how do you even convince people that they should do this? I've done a lot of corporate workshops where I'll sit down with a bunch of executives from a manufacturing company and I'll say something like, okay, what would it be like for your company to be a software company? This is going to be an incredibly fruitful exercise. You know, what if your employees were your customers? What would that look like? Great question, Greg. The way that you framed the question was precisely right, which is how do you get people to care about that question? Because especially a successful company, one that's current profits and growth are not too bad, there may be no sense of urgency to explore that question, in which case the best you can do is appeal to some sort of sense of curiosity. So urgency really helps. And now you may have real urgency, which helps. You know, a threat is a great thing from that perspective because it focuses people on the existential and the alternative. It also dispels the baseline fallacy. The baseline fallacy is the idea that because I have been successful, the default is that I can continue to be successful. It's often not the case if you're threatened with disruption. The urgency can be there but hidden. You know, you may not be able to see the disruptor from another industry that is about to attack your industry. So that's exposing that gives you that sense of urgency. And then, of course, you have the art of the artificial crisis. We found many leaders of large companies that reinvented their companies had, in a very deliberate way, said, we need to get develop a sense of urgency around here. And they did that in a number of ways. I think the most common one is to listen very carefully to the customers. And the trick there is not to listen. It comes back to averages. The trick there is not to listen to the average view of the customer, because if you ask a very narrow question to an average customer, then most companies will tell you that their average customer is generally very happy with the product they're receiving. Instead, you need to focus on 
the bad customers. And that's one of the games in the book. And you need to focus on who's defecting, who's never a customer, who's a dissatisfied customer, because the information value there is potentially higher. You can also do the same thing, sense of urgency around what I call the maverick game. The maverick game says, mm. look, there's a bunch of companies out there in any industry that are taking a bet against our business model. They're taking a bet on mm. something which isn't my business model. And the game is essentially say, well, the hardest question is the first one, which is, well, what is my business model? Let me articulate what I believe about how this business works is. And then the second step is to say, well, what do they believe about how the business works is? Well, you know, what is their alternative model that they are backing? And the third one is, is the interesting question. It says, don't ask if it's good or bad, because how would you know? You're mentally invested in and you've been trained in and you think only about your current business model. So if you think it's a bad business model, is it genuinely bad or is it just merely unfamiliar and unfamiliar to you? So instead, we suggest the technique of best case, which is you make the best case for the business model and you assume that they were correct. And you look at the consequences for your business and predicated on the assumption that they are correct, you stand back and you say, well, what should be our stance towards this not inevitability, this possibility. And in the process, what you find is that you relax current mental models, you encourage exploration of others, you eventually end up with what you wanted to do, which is to adopt this broader view. But that's a very, very important thing because, as they say, success is toxic, but success trap is alive and kicking. There are lots of very big, profitable companies out there that have very high market share that are quite vulnerable. And so the, you know, one of the key roles of leadership here is to create that sense of urgency and that perpetuation of curiosity. Some of my other folks I've spoken to, they talk about the curse of NPV thinking and ROI thinking. It's to set aside a whole big chunk of time for reflection, to set aside a bunch of time for counterfactual thinking. As you suggest, as you recommend, put your phone down, walk around, put it in your calendar, put it in your schedule. This is something that's very difficult to justify when companies are short on time, short on manpower, right? Even when things are urgent. Yeah, it's difficult to justify if you judge the merit of things in terms of efficiency, your instantaneous input-output ratio, your productivity will, will not be enhanced by reflecting on things that could be the case or might be the case. However, it's inevitable that if you don't think about those things at all, there is a 100% probability that at some point your business will be obsolete. The trouble with waiting for when you need this thinking is that it's generally too late. So we've done some work, it was incorporated a little bit in the book, but it's mainly published separately, on the value of preemptive self-disruption. And what we found was that it was quite rare for successful companies to turn themselves around preemptively, to preemptively self-disrupt. But essentially that every every minute counted. In other words, theoretically, there could be a, a limit to preemption, right? Which is if I disturb successful things too much, I could actually theoretically destroy value. In practice, we found that the problem was very much biased in the opposite direction. Most companies left it too late and therefore risked big step change turnarounds. And we know that those turnarounds fail 75% of the time. And every month of preemption actually improved the results and, and the probability of, of attaining a successful result. So is that inefficient? Yes, it's inefficient in the short run, but in the longer run, it is essential. But you also have some comments in the book on the role of the parasympathetic nervous system and, and how stress can oftentimes get in the way of people thinking creatively. But when you have a sense of urgency, one would think that you would be able to do more reflective, creative, counterfactual thinking before the urgency kicks in. And when the urgency kicks in and anxiety takes over, then it makes it even more difficult for you to do this. Yes. So, you know, we suggest a bunch of things in the book to help companies to 
improve their ability to harness imagination. And probably the simplest recipe for killing all of that is too much fear and no time. So too much urgency. I think too much tepid water is is a different type of problem. Like no need, no rational need to explore other things. No sense of urgency at all is is toxic. And sometimes that's the the arrogance or the complacency of large corporations, but equally something where there is a pressure to enhance productivity right now or solve a problem right now, to give a very mechanical description of it. Too much tactical urgency can also crowd out this sort of thinking. So you're looking for some sort of happy optimum in at least part of the organization. Now, in terms of gaining inspiration, uncovering new information and enhancing your counterfactual reasoning, you you talk about creating a learning journey for people within the organization. And how much of this learning journey needs to be structured and how much of it needs to leave room for for serendipity? Is there a way to have planned serendipity? Is there a way to organize a learning journey that maximizes the exposure to potential surprises? And is this something that you should think of as part of the kind of learning and development of the organization? Is there a role for a formal mandate around learning? Well, this comes back to the theme of the whole reinvention of the construct of organizations. So one key aspect of organization is qualification and competence and learning. And you probably feel this in your job of you know, teaching MBA students, which is the old model is that you learn at the beginning of your career and what you learn is knowledge. And then the rest of your career, you trade on that knowledge. And that's not a bad thing, but it makes one huge assumption, which is that the knowledge will continue to be relevant. And of course, that's especially anything to do with technology. That's just not the case. So what you really want is a shift to more continuous learning and also, given what I've said about the decay of competitive advantage, also more, more deployment to creative capabilities than knowledge-based learning. In other words, the knowledge that we need to reinvent a company is not something we can look up in, in any textbook, even a recent one. It's deploying the, the capability of, of learning new things. So in, in business, we had for a long time the learning curve. As I build cumulative volume and cumulative experience, my costs tend to decline. BBC is a major pioneer in that area. But we now need a different type of learning curve, which is the ability to learn new things. So I talk about competing on the rate of learning, and that's what I mean. So what are the nuts and bolts of that? I think it is, number one, hiring people for their learning potential. So you're judging people by their learning potential, not by what they currently know. You're also, in a sense, looking for contrarian learning, because the most valuable learnings will be the perhaps where their new learnings are likely to disagree, their propensity to entertain alternative mental models and go against a conventional wisdom. You need some of that in the organization. This needs to happen continuously. And since it's not entirely planable, we don't know what it is that we'll need to learn to reinvent the company. Indeed, we need to be open to serendipity. And I think the first step, the first massive step in openness to serendipity is just the basic physics of allow time to do that, show culturally that, that that's a good thing, and have people exposed to the signals that they need to adapt to or harness, in other words, be externally facing. So if, if success is the first enemy of imagination, uh, success and complacency, I think the second one is this introversion that comes with scale and success in large companies. So you, you mentioned hire people that have certain attributes. You actually, I think in the book, go through in, in some detail what that would look like. How would you conduct an interview process that would be designed around identifying those characteristics? Well, I don't think we, we yet have the textbook on how to do that. And I'm sure we'll, the first thing we say is that we need those sorts of interviews. We need to assess those sorts of capabilities. And we do make some suggestions. A company that actually does this is Alibaba hires people not on change tolerance. They hire people on love of change. So the questions that they are asking indirectly are essentially, have you experienced change? And 
Did it energize you? Were you able to take the change as a sort of a, a liberation a possibility to in, embrace new ways of thinking? If you talk to people about what they've done, you will see that there are very different types with respect to that. Some of us are more oriented towards optimizing what is, others following rules and conventions as to what is, and others challenging what is and inventing new ways of thinking. Now, we may have different problems if everyone were like that, but we certainly need more people in large corporations to be like that. And that is a bit of a problem because if you think about it, take this traditional concept of a large organization, which is optimizing yesterday's successful business model, which undoubtedly needs to occur because that's where the cash comes from to pay for the future growth. It tends to be associated with the notion that the person with the biggest P&L, the person with the biggest historic contribution, the person with the biggest organization is the most important. And if you have mavericks in your organization that are the future seeds of hope, essentially they need to feel recognized. They need to feel and actually to be heard. So it's also an issue of corporate culture. You need those people in the first place, and you also need an environment where their type of contribution can be recognized. Well, it seems very difficult, though, if you have a legacy organization where you haven't been hiring for those attributes, and most of the people that you have in the organization are, are not resistant to learning or have not been incentivized for decades on questioning their mental models. If you're a leader in that organization, how do you reorient the organization? Is there a way that you can kind of wall off the, the harmful elements and just create a whole new division? Or do you try to change those people in, in some way? Because ultimately, if you can't change them, then whatever new mavericks you bring in, they're just going to get frustrated and defeated and they're going to leave. Well, I think there are different strategies that are successful under different circumstances to achieve ambidexterity. When I say ambidexterity, not just ambidexterity of externals, you know, things mm -hmm. that we do, but ambidexterity of internals, ways of thinking. Probably the simplest strategy is separation, which is the one you're just referring to, which is you simply say, well, let's have, let's have the new unit and the old unit. They don't have to completely harmonize because, of course, we know that everybody being ambidextrous is a hopelessly unrealistic dream. We know from neuroscience that we, you know, we're never all going to have that profile. It's improbable that we're going to hire an organization where everybody can be a poet, a poet and an accountant at the same time. So separation. But separation has, has some costs associated with it. One of them is that if you do discover the new in the new unit, you know, how do you take resources away from the previously successful and put it towards the prospectively successful? We know that resource allocation is not a trivial thing in that respect. The second alternative is what we call switching, which is you actually do have ambidextrous teams and the focus of the team starts off more creative and counterfactual and becomes more engineering-like over time. That's hard to do. You wouldn't do that just for the sake of it, but you might have to do that if you're in a business where your product life cycles progress very rapidly so you don't have these sort of messy reintegration problems. So Corning Glass is a good example of a company that tries to achieve this sort of contextual ambidexterity. And then the third alternative is the alternative of the internal ecosystem, where you see the company as simply the playing field upon which different diverse approaches can, can apply. And the role of management is to keep score across these competing micro-business units. So the company becomes an internal marketplace. So Hire, the Chinese white goods company, is a very good example of that. And then the example that was rare 10 years ago is the digital external ecosystem. 10 years ago, none of the world's 10 largest companies was a digital external ecosystem. Now, seven of the world's 10 largest companies 10 years later are digital ecosystems. A huge change in business that changes the whole concept of strategy because the question now becomes not, how do I construct a competitively successful company? It becomes, how do I create a successful position within a successful ecosystem? So the unit of analysis, organizationally speaking, changes. And that's quite a useful strategy because 
you don't necessarily have to have all of the capabilities that we're talking about here yourself. You just have to have a reason for other people to join a club that collectively has those capabilities. So the one that's really massively on the rise is this external ecosystems-based approach. But there are four approaches, each of which are optimal under different circumstances, I think. So you, you mentioned how important it is for people to have Renaissance perspective, right? Ideally have some familiarity with the humanities, some familiarity with the sciences, you point to Goethe as your kind of ideal last Renaissance man. I don't think we're going to be able to recruit too many Goethes to work in our companies. But would you encourage people as individuals, as part of their career journey, to look to someone like a Goethe as, as more of a role model than someone who is more narrow in their perspective to be in business? Or would you simply encourage them to outsource this by joining a team that is diverse, that has lots of diverse perspectives, that's cognitively diverse, that brings different things to the table? and as a company, is it better to hire a dozen Goethes or is it better to hire you know, a couple who are good at optics and a couple who are good at poetry and a couple who are good at all the other th- botany and all the other things that Goethe was good at and have them work it out in a room? Well, I think cognitive diversity is, is good at, at an individual level. If you want to diversify the risk in your career, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Or another way of putting it is invest in meta-learning, invest in learning skills rather than having learned a particular thing. And Familiarity with multiple disciplines, even if it's just two, but two or three or four or five, just expands your repertoire of ways of thinking about things. So that's valuable at an individual level. And we're now in a situation where it's extremely unlikely that anyone can build a career by being good at one thing. So the idea of rising through the ranks, you know, staying with one company, with one business model, and trading on your expertise is extremely unlikely in almost any business I can think about. So this really is a you know a widespread need for us individually to diversify our talents. Now, of course, as you said, there are limits to that. So we're not going to be able to hire too many Goethe's. And in which case, we also need to focus on ambidextrous teams. So especially anyone in a position of leadership wants to make sure that their team doesn't become too much oriented to optimizing yesterday's business model. So you have the engineering and the finance associated with fine-tuning yesterday's business model. That's a a valuable thing, but it doesn't set up for the inevitable possibility that that will need to be reinvented at some point. So you need those skills on the team. You need those conversations in advance of having the urgent need to reinvent your business. That in itself, I think, feeds in then to, I think, the final chapter of the book, which is the chapter on leadership, which is what what is the role of leaders in all of this? Well, a leader can set the cultural context, which is they can legitimize this exploration activity. They can hire the diversity of skills that you're going to need, not just to run a business, but to reinvent a business. They can make sure that they have ambidextrous top teams. They may not be able to be always able to give good prescriptions in fast-changing businesses, but they can have very good questions. They can signal a lot in the art of asking the right questions. And also they can create this optimal sense of urgency that we talked about in terms of the tone and the comfort of the organization. And also they can modulate the degree of metabolism of the organization. Because another thing that gets in the way of much of what we've talked about is too much static complexity. I mean, large organizations are complex and that complexity is often static. Whereas, for instance, come back to Alibaba, one of the things that they believe is that all aspects of the organization should be adapting to changing market circumstances at all times. And they explicitly say that sometimes it may be, they say that the default is change. And sometimes that means changing if there's no reason to, 
And they recognize that may come at the expense of efficiency, but they think the long-term cost of losing fluidity is even greater. So they're constantly investing in, in change. And they can, they can de-risk that by having the grain size of the change be quite small. So they're never betting the shop by changing anything. They're, they're constantly changing things in small ways. And by also making change reversible, making it about change options rather than wholesale overhaul in as many cases as possible. So I think pretty much every business leader I've spoken to believes that cognitive diversity is important. And certainly there's a, there's a lot of, you know, HR departments have embraced the idea of diversity, but is something lost in translation by the time it gets down to, to the HR department? Are companies, do they understand at the recruiting level what this means, cognitive diversity? Well, I think diversity is a big thing in business. We talk about it a lot. We talk about it mainly in, in relation to protected characteristics. So I think there is widespread, large-scale, sincere efforts on that front. I would observe that we haven't made that much progress on for the volume of verbiage on the topic. Progress has been surprisingly slow, especially in the middle of organizations. A lot of companies have increased their recruiting diversity and they've managed to get a certain level of diversity in, the, in top teams, even if it, it is short of, say, gender parity. But in the middle of the organizations, remarkably slow progress, frustrating and slow process. And then I think Cognitive diversity is a little different. I don't think we have widespread agreement on how to measure cognitive diversity. Mm. So lots of testing for diversity, cognitive diversity in business is based upon psychology, you know, personality assessments, which is mm. in many cases self-perception of psychological traits. I think the evidence says that neuroscience-based assessment, which is a different school of thought, is less my perception of my own personality than my cognitive abilities as measured by sort of neuroscience games and tests. That has a much higher predictive value in what we talk about a company called Pymetrics, which is an MIT spin-out that has combined machine learning with neuroscience testing for the purpose of creating more predictive measures of neurodiversity. And I, I don't think it's yet the case that this is the norm in HR departments. I think in the last chapter, you talk about corporate scripts and how important it is for leaders to design a corporate script. We see companies like Amazon and Facebook and, and Google with corporate mission statements, or you know, in the case of Amazon, they have the 14 characteristics that they believe to be the defining principles of an Amazonian. And you argue that these things can't be too complex and they can't be too simple. What would be an example or what would it look like to have one of these corporate scripts that would maximize the amount of counterfactual thinking, of learning, of ambidextrousness that you would want to see in an organization. Right. So you're referring to, to steps five and, and six in our six-step framework. Yeah. So the step five says that codification may sound like the opposite of imagination. You know, writing the SOP for the new offering, what can be less imaginative? In fact, it's not such an easy thing. It requires a different type of imagination to say of the thousands of things we could talk about in relation to the new innovation, having employees aware of these five critical things is the heart of it. Communicating that precisely enough that it is mm -hmm. able to replicate the good effect of the new offering, but not so tightly that it, it undermines customization and evolvability. So that's a very important part of imagination later in the cycle, where you're trying to sort of codify and replicate success involving people that were not involved in the original context. So that was one of the more interesting chapters to write, to look at how companies that codify different innovations. And then there is the meta-codification, if you like, of the way of conceiving new ideas and codifying new ideas and being ambidextrous on an ongoing basis. The reason we think this is important is that without that ability to exploit the fruits of imagination, there'll be no funding of new imagination. 
And so that's important. And also every company will need to do this multiple times in its life cycle. So it's very important that this is a repeatable capability, which is preemptively prepared. So you could call this the innovation operating system of the enterprise, if you like. It's very important to name what it is and to make it fit for purpose and also to evolve the system at that level. And you need a couple of characteristics in there. You need a system, so speaking about the innovation system and codification of that, I think there are different ways of getting the job done, but you need essentially the possibility of each of the stages that we've talked about today to be viable. You need the stage of observing anomalous signals to be viable, and that involves a bunch of things that we've already spoken about, you know, spending time on that, being externally oriented and so on. You need the reflection time. You need step two. You need to celebrate reflection, show that it's an important part of the job, train people how to do that. You need a sufficient volume of experimentation in stage three that we call the collision, which is where you collide ideas with reality, not only to see whether they're valid or not, but also to generate new surprises and insights. You need the communication of insights so that insights become shared. If my ideas doesn't travel in an organization, and many large organizations have very powerful barriers to prevent communication and common language around early stage ideas, without that, it remains a private hobby or a fantasy. So there has to be collective alignment and amplification of an evolution of ideas. The codification step, and then the self-disruption at the end of the cycle to say, let's do it again, which we know is a tremendously hard thing. We know that companies that are able to do that which is about erasing the script or disrupting the script or allowing plurality in the script, you know, not, not taking the final 5% of the optimization to eliminate all variants whatsoever. You know, I think this is a, a very high order necessary leadership trait in today's business environment. Well, I think all those steps are very well articulated in the book. And in addition to discussing them, you ground them in psychology, you ground them in, in biology, you ground them in philosophy. You also provide readers with a bunch of different exercises that they can do within their own organizations. And also you provide diagnostics, which allow them to evaluate where their organization is along this journey. So Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. The book is Imagination Machine, co-authored with Jack Fuller. And of course, there's Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, which is also a great book to check out. Thank you so much, Martin. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.